sorry, I got a little bit of a sniffle, so I apologize at all. And I have one Kleenex, so we'll see how well we do with that. Um, good morning. Man, I was, I didn't know if that was my cue or, or what. Thank you so much, Graham. Because I was happy to let Sharon keep going, like that enthusiasm and excitement. Doesn't that just excite you? Like, isn't it, isn't it good to be gathered in the house of the Lord this morning? Man. I feel so blessed to get to be up here and share with you this morning. Uh, my name is Chris Drinnen, and I'm an associate slash student ministries pastor here at Hillcrest. Those of you that receive the pastor's heart, you'll know that I don't share um, the same terminology as Pastor Steve when referring to our student ministries, okay? We see it as more than just a youth group. We see it as an actual ministry, which is great. Sorry, Steve. Anyways, I want to just take a couple of minutes. we got a lot going on. Uh, as Steve has already said, we're actually moving. Our service is moving its way. We've had child dedications, and we're moving towards a baptism, uh, as you can see over here on my left. And so I got, I got some time, but I have to be sensitive and aware of it. So I'll do my best to do that. But just before I jump into the message, I really want to um, kind of bring people up to speed and just kind of give a bit of an overarching view of sort of the series that we're in, in case any of you are brand new with us. Um, I just want to kind of bring you up to speed. So we've been in an Easter series, uh, as you can see up there, and it's been largely based on Lee Strobel's book, uh, The Case for Christ, or a condensed version that deals with Easter specifically. And there's a number of those books that are available for free just out on a back table in our foyer. So if you haven't gotten one of those books, feel free to grab it. It's a, it's a great, great read and an inspiring read, and it's short, which is right up my alley. Cam, I'm getting some echo. Do you want me to switch? Okay, he's going to work with it. That's great. Um, so, two weeks ago, we had Pastor Steve up here, and he kicked off our series um, with his top 10 list. Um, I wasn't able to be in the service, actually, for the last two weeks, so I had to catch that one by podcast, and I recommend it. In fact, I've heard other people from our congregation saying, it's worth listening to, it's worth writing down those 10 scripture references, putting them in your Bible, and revisiting them off, often because of the truth that they held. And what Pastor Steve was going after with those, that top 10 list was these top 10 Christ, uh, scriptures that, port, that show the divinity of Jesus Christ that shows something about who he is, which is absolutely central to the Easter message. And then last week, um, those of you that were here, I uh, got to see Doug Sigelko uh, preaching, and he was talking about the crucifixion. Um, now, that also was one that I caught via podcast, and I have to admit, it's fairly detailed and vivid. In fact, uh, in fact, I mean, it, I don't think we had a real-life crucifixion acted out while we were here, but according to the way that Doug described it, I actually felt like I was here in the room. But again, a central part of the Easter message in knowing the punishment and the payment that was required for sin, and something that Jesus... Uh, wasn't something that he tried to avoid and then got caught up into and it was inevitable, but rather it was something that Jesus Christ faced the cross from early on in his ministry, knew that that was, God was at, that that was what God was asking of him, and he went willingly for the sins of you and me. Amazing, amazing. Uh, I'm just going to bring it up. Today we're looking at um, 
The Empty Tomb. I'm excited to get to talk to you about uh, The Empty Tomb and a case for The Empty Tomb. And then next week, actually, oh, it's the high point of the series. Uh, Pastor Daisy Sigel, oh, Daisy Richardson, sorry, Daisy, I always do that, um, is is preaching on kind of the eyewitnesses account. So following closely with the people that encountered Jesus. And that was the message I wanted to vie for, but they gave me the empty tomb instead. Which, it's good, it's good, it's good. I'm not gonna complain, it's good, it's gonna be good. But I wanted, some of you, uh, we don't do this often enough, but I just wanna draw your attention. If you go to hillcrestmj.com, which is our website, and you simply go across the menu on the top, you find resources, you click there, you'll find something that says podcasts. Feel free to click on that. And that usually has, uh, that has all our latest podcasts up there. So you can catch them in case you miss the service. So I just want to make you aware of that. Okay. So I'd like to kickstart our morning this morning with a question. And that question is simply this. What would rock your faith? Think about that. Is there something, some information that you could gain or understand, or some event that could happen that would rock your faith in a way that it would call into question what you are committed to believing? Now, what is that one thing that if discovered or event that happened that if found out to be true or certain would upset your faith? Now, I realize that we're, we're talking to an audience that, that probably, I want to be respectful that while I know many of you committed, passionate Christians, I, w- I don't want to make the assumption that everyone in the room is. And so I actually want to invite um, anybody that maybe isn't a Christian. Like, maybe you're a skeptic and you're like, I'm not too sure about uh, this whole Christianity thing and Jesus thing. Um, perhaps even maybe you'd go so far as to say that you're an atheist, that you actually don't really believe that there is a God, uh, but somebody invited you to church and you ended up here, so here you are. Or maybe you're an agnostic. Now, an agnostic is someone who would say, I, I don't think, I don't know what the answer is, and I don't think you can know, and so therefore, I don't really think it totally matters. Okay? And I want to invite you as well. Um, if the story of our life is really an expression or, or, or a, an outplaying of the beliefs and the convictions that we hold to, then I want to ask you the same thing. Clearly, there's faith in some form of information or some understanding. And I want to ask you, too, this morning, what is it that would really rock your faith? That would cause you to doubt or even cause you to change your opinion entirely? Now, this very question when that was asked of me uh, about 15 years ago when I was at Bible college and I was, I don't remember the exact environment, but I remember I was hanging out. Uh, he was my mentor. He was also on staff at the time. And we were hanging out. And I think there was a group of us there. And he simply asked that question. He said, hey, guys, what would it be, what would rock or upset your, upset your faith in God? And now, Being sort of freshly out of high school, having spent a little bit of time at Bible school, I was sort of like thinking that this was like a Bible school skill testing question type thing. And so, because immediately when he asked that, the initial thing that rose up in my heart was nothing. 
Nothing can rock my faith. I'm absolutely secure and absolutely committed to the direction of Christianity, to my Lord and Savior. There's nothing that you could say that would ever cause me to call into question that faith that I have. I was like, yes, there's nothing. Except I didn't play it that way. Um, My instinct was actually to say, was not to say nothing, but rather to downplay it a little bit, to say, uh, I don't know. Nothing really comes to my mind right now to play it cool. And after a long pause, uh, this gentleman said, he said, if they ever found the bones of Jesus, that would rock my faith. Like, if it could be proved clearly And truthfully, that would upset my faith in who Jesus really was. Caught up in the moment. I kind of wanted to say, not me. It would be a lie. My faith is so secure, there's nothing that can rock it. And I realize now as I look back on that moment, I realize it's sort of classic rookie Bible school move 101. Where you're way more interested in just giving the answers than actually understanding the depths of the question being asked. And I realized that that question in and of itself holds, um, holds a lot of power. And that if they could actually produce the bones of Jesus, that really would wreck my faith in who he was and who he claimed to be. And I'm sure if you're here with me, you can relate with that. And you know, sometimes I feel like um, skeptics or people who are um, who who don't um, don't subscribe to Christianity or aren't interested in it or are critics of it, I feel like sometimes they they think that that they think that Christians are like that that they'll they'll believe anything. They'll be, doesn't matter what the evidence is. That you know they're just they're simple minded and it's just all about their conviction rather than the evidence. And if I'm honest. I can say that sometimes there are seasons in my life where I sort of feel that way, that I get caught up in a, in a sense of my own conviction and the rightness of things that I actually don't care what the information is. And so that actually brings us to the thing that we're exploring this morning about an empty tomb and looking at sort of the arguments in and around that to look at the evidence and let it speak sort of for itself. And so I'm going to kind of be walking us through that. Through that, We all have that in common um, about, about things that can rock our faith or upset our faith. And I'm, I'm sure you can agree. Um, same question, same school, different person given a different answer was sharing about this, about what would really rock your faith. And he was actually my roommate at the time. And he said, you know what? I was led to the, I was led to the Lord by so-and-so, and he's just been such a, an amazing example to me about who God is and what Jesus is like. That if he ever left his faith, then, man, that would, that would really wreck where I'm at. That would rock my faith. I was like, Interesting. You know, sometimes it's true that, um, that we can broaden this question a little bit. That there are lesser things in our lives that try to assault our faith or try to rock our faith. 
Maybe you're facing a job loss, and that's been ex extremely difficult. That would have an impact on your faith. Maybe there's an ongoing sort of family issue or tension that, if you're honest, at times causes you to doubt or to question. Maybe there's marital trials, challenges, being single, health issues, financial struggles, heading off to university and not sure what the world is going to look like or how things are going to look or work out. What are the things in your life that are putting pressure on your belief, putting pressure on your faith? That maybe if you were honest, you'd say it's, it's rocking it and causing me to doubt a little bit. These things aren't easy when, they, when we come up against them day in and day out. They push against our faith and they actually take a, 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 our conscious level of, of effort and energy to try and be disciplined in the way that we're approaching them and navigating them each and every day. Everyone really is looking for answers. And if you're honest, if you, if you admit that that's kind of where you're at this morning, then I want you to know you're in a good place. You're in a great place because what we're actually about to look at, God has something that he wants to offer to you, some information, some promise that is going to make a world of difference in your situation and circumstance. And so as we move on here, um, I've kind of affectionately, I'd like to take a look at um, kind of three and three. I'd like to take a look at kind of three um, points that have been presented by skeptics in regards to the empty tomb. And then I'd like to take a look at, and, just, and I'm really just doing surface level summary stuff here, but then I'd like to take a look at sort of these three other criteria that I think are really convincing for, for authenticating an empty tomb and a resurrected Lord. And so we'll work our way through that, and my hope is to bring it, oh, my hope is to bring it to a gem of a piece of scripture that time permitting, we'll get to, and I'd like to offer to you uh, by way of, of the scripture passage that we're actually going to be spending a little bit more time to rather than just giving um, reference to a lot of it, if that makes sense. So here we go. We, we're looking at the case for the empty tomb, and I've kind of titled it here. Um, Tim, if you could skip a few more slides down. I've titled it here, How God Rocks. That's what I've titled it. And there's actually a really interesting uh, quote that I'm going to ask. Tim, if you can bring it up. There we go. Here it is. It says, and this is taken from an article written by uh, the Gospel Coalition that I, I thought was sort of like a great introduction slash sort of summary of, of where we're going this morning. It says, the resurrection is the hinge on which all of Christianity turns. It's the foundation on which everything else rests. The capstone that holds everything else about Christianity together. Which means, crucially, that when Christians assert that Jesus rose from the dead, they are making a historical claim, not a religious one. Meaning that, obviously, there are religious implications of Jesus rising from the dead. And yet, if we're honest and we look back at history, we also claim that it is very much, it's a historical point. And so that should, the evidence for that should bear weight as we explore our items here. So, the first of our three uh, stuff um, by skeptics, um, I've cleverly, oh, just cleverly tried 
to make them all start with E, okay? So here we go. The first one is uh, irrelevant. Okay, maybe I had to take some phonetic liberties with this, but here we go. We're going to look at irrelevant. That, that Jesus' body didn't even make it to the tomb. So in the case for the, for the empty tomb, critics will often say, well, maybe it didn't even make it there. And as Doug pointed out last week, it was common practice to leave anyone that was crucified up on the cross, and who knows what would happen to their body over the days that it hung there, and then in the end, it would actually just be pushed into a mass grave and buried and be unidentifiable, unrecognizable, and kind of lost forever. However, in the story of Jesus and the accounts that we have in the Bible, we discover that there's, there's good documentation that takes us from a Jesus dead on a cross to a Jesus laid in a tomb. And I find this information actually really inspiring. Um, in terms of, uh, I'll just go back to this, in terms of the assurance for the crucifixion, even incredibly critical scholars, as they look back at history, uh, one, his name is uh, John Cross, and he's with the Jesus Seminar, and he's, he's super critical uh, towards kind of resurrection and, and that type of stuff. But he would say that, G, that Jesus was crucified is as sure as, any histor- as anything historical can ever be. He said that there's just that much information and attestation to that fact. Um, even outside biblical sources, that it's just well known that Jesus lived and that he was in truth uh, crucified. But as we go on, I want to explore um, a couple other things here, is that in terms of uh, there being an empty tomb and it being irrelevant, we actually have this guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, who is found in actually all four gospel accounts. Now, you'd sort of think off the hop, well, yeah, I mean, the gospel accounts, they're all telling the same story, they're all going to have their... They're facts. But if you've read some of the Gospels, you realize how very different they can be. And so it's actually really interesting when we find that all four of them agree on a, same, on a similar point, especially when it's a secondary character like we find here in Joseph. And so as the story goes, Joseph was actually part of the Sanhedrin, but out of his fear for his Jewish brothers who were allied and kind of rallied against Jesus, he kind of withheld his, uh, his um, acceptance of Jesus and his discipleship for fear of, of, of the Jews and what they would do. And yet, as Jesus dies, we find that it's Joseph who comes out of the shadows and he goes to Pilate and he requests Jesus' body to be buried. Now, it's interesting here, some of the things that we don't know in our day and age is that there was a sense of urgency with this. Do you remember the part of the story where um, the Jewish leaders are asking uh, Pilate to go and break uh, the crucified's legs so that they would die quicker so that the bodies could be removed because the next day was Saturday, which in their day was their Sabbath. And so they didn't want any bodies hanging up on the Sabbath. And so there was kind of a sense of rush. But when the soldiers went to take a look at Jesus, they realized he was, he'd already gone. And so here, even though Jesus has been abandoned by all of his disciples, and there's only a, a small cluster of, of women and possibly the Apostle John at his cross... 
It's not them that make the appeal for Jesus' body, but we find that it's someone from the Sanhedrin who does it. And what's interesting is, is that this is, this is attested to in all four Gospels. Uh, the articles also, um, as you read in Scripture in this area, you also get an idea that women actually witnesses this event. They were standing right there as Joseph brings the body down, wraps it in spices, uh, hastily kind of gets it ready for the tomb. And, and, and the hope was always that the women were planning on coming back and bringing more spices and actually doing a just job of maybe where Joseph did a bit more of a rush deal. Uh, they wanted to come back and revisit this, but they, they had to take a break because you couldn't do this on a Sabbath. And so interestingly enough, we have this Joseph character who does all of this. And so the empty tomb is not irrelevant in that there seems like there's great documentation and evidence to support him being laid in a physical tomb. Uh, It says that the tomb was actually um, Joseph's own tomb and it was a brand new tomb, freshly carved. Nobody else had ever laid in this tomb. Nobody else had ever been placed Jesus had the whole thing to himself. And it was even on the edge of a garden and it was close to where he was crucified. So in terms of it being uh, quick access. Uh, the second one here that we're going to look at. So uh, irrelevant was the first. Uh, now we're actually getting on to ease here. We're going to look at escape. One of the, the skeptics of the empty tomb, they would propose sort of this theory that, well, maybe Jesus escaped. Maybe he never really died on the cross, they just thought he was dead, put him in a tomb, and then he comes to, and he's able to escape. Now, this is actually kind of comical to think about, because if you subscribe to the, the, the weight of evidence on what happened during a crucifixion, it's, it's inconceivable to imagine Jesus coming to, laying on a stone tablet, body having been beaten, having been crucified, having been stabbed with a spear, and to hobble off that thing and roll away a stone and escape. Now, he was a pretty impressive guy. So even if he could have done all that, even if he couldn't have done all that, there's the nature of the people that he visited, the witnesses to the resurrection, As a disciple, how inspired would you be that someone claiming to be or that you would hail as the victor of death, the overcomer, risen again from the grave, if a man who stands before you is on the last thread of life, nursing wounds, broken, beaten, not very inspiring at all, right? Rather than awe and wonder, which is what we see in the disciples who encountered Jesus after the resurrection, we would see pity and shock and let's get this man a doctor, right? Because he's on the brink of death. So Romans were very good at their job. There's no way that Jesus was living when he came down off that cross. They were the professionals in death. Getting out of the tomb would have been difficult. And it's hard to imagine a wounded Jesus inspiring anybody. And lastly, looking at these, uh, for skeptics of, uh, of the tomb and the resurrection, is air. Could it be possible 
It's that people went to the wrong tomb. Think about that. That if you were a disciple, your Lord had been crucified, laid in a tomb, and you went to that tomb, but somehow along the way, you got mixed up, and you went to the wrong tomb, and that tomb didn't have a body in it, and you're like, he's risen. And you went out and you began proclaiming that to everyone, saying, the Lord has risen, he's risen indeed. And people were like, really? And they'd want to follow up and they'd be like, well, you got the address wrong. It's actually this tomb. And in this tomb there lies, there lies a body. And so it actually seems quite um, unlikely, unlikely that it would have just been a simple Simple experience of getting the wrong tomb. It seems like everybody knew where the tomb was. I mean, Joseph was with the Sanhedrin, and he was the one who buried Jesus' body. And we actually have the location of it marked in terms of it being his actual tomb. And Mary and, and a group of women had been witnesses to this. And so it seems like people on both sides, those, the, the skeptics and those, uh, the enemies of Christ and also those that were following him knew the location of that tomb. And you have to admit, for Christianity to get a start in which an empty tomb is essential and the resurrection key it all started in Jerusalem, the place where Jesus was publicly executed and buried. And so it seems highly unlikely that a movement could get ground about someone rising from the grave if they knew where the grave was, where the body was laid. One of the interesting things that I discovered about actually these three sort of theories in terms of trying to make a way for... Um, for the empty tomb, is that, did you know that there's, there's no evidence to support that anybody in the first century actually thought any of these were viable, or even thought them at all? In fact, what you tend to find out is that these arguments against sort of an empty tomb and justification and against the resurrection, it's actually proposed by people that are, well, hundreds and thousands of years removed from this situation. And so we actually don't have any record whatsoever from the first century of people contesting the tomb with these. I find that really interesting. So what, Chris, do we find? What do we find from the first century that attests to this? Wow, I'm really glad that you asked that question. Because now we're going to take a look at sort of uh, three components, I think, that are in support or favor of the resurrection. So we'll pop to the next slide. And the first one of those, and I'm, I'm in keeping with my pattern here, they're all going to start with E, is this idea of enemy attestation. So here what we do find is that Jesus' enemies admit it, albeit indirectly, to an empty tomb when they claim that the body had been stolen. And we have this in biblical accounts and extra biblical accounts, which means they're not canon, but they're ancient writings that attest to this. That when confronted with resurrection, that the Jewish leaders at the time, those who had the most to lose from there actually being a resurrected Lord on the loose, rather than saying, oh, you, guys got your, you guys got your address wrong, this is a tomb, and here's the body, 
Rather than being able to do that, the best they could come up with is the disciples stole the body. And in that, it's sort of like, it's sort of like if, um, if your mom says that you are an honest person, we would have reason to believe that. However, we might hold that a little bit loosely because we understand that she's your mom and we would hope that she's a little bit biased towards you, right? Just like my mom was in regards to all of my preaching as a young man. I preached some real doozies and you could ask my mom after the service and she'd be like, oh, Chris, the Lord just met me. Like she was just always so encouraging. Like the Lord met her every time. It was amazing, you know. The pastor of the church wouldn't make eye contact with me after that service, but my mom thought I did a pretty good job of bringing the, the word of the Lord. But if an enemy says and concedes that you are, in fact, an honest person, well, now all of a sudden that carries a little bit different weight, doesn't it? Because we know that the bias is gone. The agenda is gone. And that's actually what we find in scripture in regards to this, is that it's actually the enemies of Jesus who are conceding that there is in truth, in fact, no body that can be found or presented to undo this notion of resurrection. And this, was, this is the only documented kind of rebuttal from first century that we find. Uh, next up, uh, for evidence for the empty tomb and the resurrection, we look at this notion of, excuse me. Of embarrassment. So it's known as, in books, sort of like this principle of embarrassment. And what, excuse me, how I would summarize this is that some of the details would be better left out. So this notion is that um, if, if Christianity and the resurrection really was just a made-up story, something that grew up out of legend or a group of disciples deciding, you know, it's a bummer we lost our leader. What, where can we go from here? And they strategize sort of this thing that he'd resurrected. Um, wouldn't it make sense that they would actually want to retain parts of the story or cut out parts of the story that either made them look bad or that were sort of sources of embarrassment. I know I would, um, in talking about, you know, my sports accomplishments and things like that, you know, I might, you know, I might say that I bowled, you know, a 170, a 10-pin bowling on Friday with my friends, which I did, I was quite impressed with. However, it's only the second time I've been 10-pin bowling, and for 25 minutes of that, I was talking, I was having a pastoral conversation with somebody else while I was bowling. And that's when all my, my good things. Anyways, so I would, I would leave out these parts that are embarrassing. I want to be like, I bowled well because I was intentional and I was skilled. But really, I was totally distracted, didn't even know what I was doing. I was just throwing the ball down the aisle. I was more engaged on the phone call. Which, if that guy listens to the podcast, that's going to be interesting. Anyways. <laughs> Anyways. So there we go. So 
what are some of the things that, that, that are sort of embarrassing? Well, this whole story of like, wouldn't you want it to be like if you were the disciples and you were banking, Jesus had said he was going to rise from the dead, and then he, he like, wouldn't you want to paint yourself as the hero? And yet in the gospel stories, in these stories that come out of these communities, we find the disciples aren't actually presenting themselves in the best light. Hello, they're abandoning their leader. They're denying that they know him. They're totally rejecting him and leaving him alone on the cross. The moment when they need him, when he needed them the most, they've scattered. I'd want to write that out. In another case, another part that's embarrassing that they find is, is the first witnesses on the scene happen to be women. Okay? And actually back in first, and I'm going to get in trouble with this, but we're going to go with it. But... Oh. Is that, oh, I better read this straight. In both, <laughs> in both Jewish and Roman cultures, women were lowly esteemed and their testimony was regarded as questionable at best. Certainly not as credible as a man's. Okay? We've come a long way, haven't we? And actually, I think when you look at the whole scope of the Bible and Christianity as a whole and who Jesus was, nobody, nobody, um, was, was more counter to culture than lifting women up, receiving them as disciples and their worship. And yet, it would be an embarrassing account if this was a legend to have your first testimony. Why, you, like, somebody raised from the dead? Jesus rose from the dead? Who, who were the first ones on the scene? And you're like, well, the women, they came back and told us. They were the first ones on the scene. They said it was empty and that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they'd be like, women? Like, that's not gonna hold up in court. In fact, women weren't even allowed to speak in the first century in court. Did you know that? Because they felt like either they were fearful of punishment, so they would be tempted to lie, or they were eager to gain privilege, and so their story would be biased. Just the reality of the land at that time, and yet we don't see the story covering that up or trying to change it in any ways, but rather honoring that. And it's quite interesting if you read the account in Luke, of the women coming back, having visit like an angel telling them, he's risen, go tell the disciples. They come back and Luke records it. They tell the disciples and the disciples are skeptical. They don't believe the women. And it kind of gets at that, that notion that first century, their testimony wasn't held as reliable. But much has changed, praise the Lord, even here uh, in Canada. The last one, um, the last point that I'll, I'll make here for sort of this argument for the gray empty tomb and resurrection. Um, actually, there's two more here. I'll touch on them both and then I'll head into a, a, a short chunk of scripture here. First, it's early. It starts with E and it, it's early. The closeness of people's conviction with the event is quite astounding. Uh, other accounts today that are considered to be historically accurate and true, even though they are based on historical documents and witnesses that are hundreds of years removed from the event, are still held as historically true. We do that. Scholars acknowledge that. They realize that in studying. There's lots of stories where your sources are hundreds of years removed from the actual event, and yet they're still taken as being reliable and true of that event actually happening. And we find the same 
uh, or we find something quite different in the Christian story is that we're not talking about hundreds of years, but rather when we really look into it, we're finding it's really just a matter of years or decades at the very most from when people who were alive and encountered the event were witnesses of it and it's recorded and it's documented and it's passed on. It's amazing. However, if I'm honest, I have the most convincing thing in regards to the resurrection is the reality of eyewitnesses. People who encountered Jesus Christ post-mortem. And unfortunately, like I said, Pastor Daisy gets the privilege of looking into that and I can only just tantalize you with that point. I'd like to take a little look at, um, in the Bible, and if you have one, there's one in the pew in front of you if you want to use it. Um, 1 Corinthians 15. Here we have, uh, the book of Corinthians is actually a letter written by, the, by a person by the name of Paul. And he was an apostle, though he'd never probably met Jesus face to face, he had a radical encounter with Jesus. In fact, and I, I imagine Daisy's probably going with this, so I don't want to steal too much of her thing, but he was actually persecuting the church and putting people to death who claimed Christ had risen from the grave. And he has an encounter with Jesus that changes his direction entirely transforms him. And he becomes this um, apostle to the Gentiles, taking the message of Jesus out to the rest of the, the Roman world. And in this story of 1 Corinthians, it's really neat because he, he's writing a letter to basically Sin City, okay? Somehow the Spirit had shown up, people had received Christ, and it was amazing and yet they were still really lost in their sins and things were really going weird in this church. And so Paul had to write this letter to sort of clear some things up. And we find in this, towards the end of this, uh, towards the end of his letter, he makes an appeal to them. And I'd like to draw your attention to it. It's simply this. And this is, I mean, 1 Corinthians is an amazing book anyways. And there's kind of indications that, that, Paul is being a little bit spicy here, but he says, simply in 15 verse 1, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel um, I preached to you. A few verses earlier, he was calling them ignorant, saying anyone ignorant of this is ignorant towards God. And now he's saying, I want to remind you, I want you to not be ignorant of this fact. Which... Uh, the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. So he's speaking about the good news here. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I have received, I have passed on to you. And this is the key part in the verses here. It's actually known that Paul here is actually referencing a creed that he had received. Um, during the early church. And so essentially, if you could say, if you could boil it down to the first century bumper sticker about what the gospel was, this was it. Like they'd have this put on their chariots, their mules, you know, where you would, you know, you'd meet people and this is what you would, re would reply or direct people to. A summary of all things. And so he says, that which I receive, so it means that 
Paul didn't create this. He actually received it. And it's thought that he received it from the time that either while he was in Damascus when he encountered the Lord or later when he went to Jerusalem and visited the, the, early, the disciples that he'd received this. And so we get this notion that this creed is connected to very, very early years within Jesus' death and resurrection. And here's what it has to say. It says, um, For that which I received, I pass on to you as of great importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Very sim simply said. And it's actually that the notion of, in the Greek it's different, but uh, that, that repeating of that, 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 that is sort of like this four-line creed. Now, what's so, what's so important about this? Well, you see, the, the Corinthians at that time were actually saying that there was no bodily resurrection. They got their theology sort of twisted, and they were saying, ah, you know, you sort of spiritually ascend here on earth, and then that's it. There's no actual physical resurrection from the dead. And Paul is going, that's wrong. And he needs to address it. And how does he address it? How does he bring correction? But he brings them right back to the very heart of what the gospel is. That Jesus Christ died for our sins. That he was buried, physically placed in a tomb. And he was raised again on the third day according to scriptures. And then he, was, he appeared to Peter and the rest of the disciples. That there were eyewitnesses to this event. You see, it's really great. I love all this information regarding the tomb and evidence that, that, that kind of wins an argument. And yet I'd be doing you a massive disservice today to end on that note, to simply pump you up with a few facts or thoughts about how the empty tomb was likely. Rather, it's not enough to just know what the Bible says. We have to know that God calls us to something different. And here's the point, and I'm going to wrap up with this, is that ultimately, friends, we are not called to follow facts or even historical truths. True they may be, right they may be, but rather we are called to follow a person, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so in returning to that question that I'd asked you about what rocks what could rock your faith or where are you what are the things that are pressing against you now that are trying your faith i want to encourage you that that jesus uh jesus is interested in being the rock of your faith there's not a principle that i can tell you or point to something in the bible that's going to make all the difference but when you encounter christ it changes everything about your situation. He doesn't want to settle um, to just seeing you have your faith rocked, but he really does want to be the rock of your faith. At this time, we're actually going to transition uh, a little bit, and it's to baptism. And so at this time, we're going to get the, the tech guys, when you're ready, to, to queue up the video. But I think this is really neat. I think it's... It's neat that even as we have a, a baptism, I feel like it's sort of like, it, it's a great way to end this sermon. And that Christianity isn't about asking people to subscribe to a list of um, 
things that they agree on in terms of who Jesus was or what he's done. It's more than that. We actually believe that people encounter God, that they meet with Jesus, and that that is what changes everything. And I think back to the creed that Paul had given thousands of years ago to that first century church, bringing them back to the gospel. And yet when we sang this morning, my heart was full that it's the same principles and the same truths that we sing about today. But they're not just empty historical facts. It's a person that we worship. And so how cool it is that we get to witness and support someone who's making a public declaration of their faith in following this risen Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for who you are, and I thank you that you call us into your presence, and that makes all the difference for our lives. I pray that, Lord, if there are people uh, here that don't know you, that don't, haven't entered into our living relationship with you, Lord God, that they would be stirred by your very spirit and by your presence here in this place, and that you would draw them and show them the next steps in becoming a disciple and a follower of Jesus. We thank you, God, that you're such an amazing God. Amen. At this time, I'm going to turn things over to Pastor Steve, but we're going to roll with the baptismal video at this time.